love. Some would say it took a backseat when the pandemic forced us apart. As a family-run and proudly Canadian-owned company, Charm Diamond Centres saw the need to bring us together with tales of love and created the Canadian Love Map podcast. Since then, we've shared hundreds of real, uplifting stories that prove love conquers all. So thank you for listening. We couldn't do it without you. And remember, love starts here. We make each other better. She always reminds me about what actually matters. You know, love conquers all. Wherever he is, I I want to be there, always. She just always accepted me for who I was. He makes me a better person. It was like love at first sight. Well, love is the most important thing. When I have an inkling to call a friend up or a family member, I don't hesitate. I think you need to appreciate how fleeting life is and how privileged we are to actually have our health and our, and our cognition. I tell my son that I love him every day, that I'm proud of him. I want the record to be known to all my loved ones uh, how I felt. My heart's more on my sleeve than it ever was before this. Hi, I'm Nancy Regan. Caring for aging parents has been described as the ultimate expression of love. This week's love story belongs to Aaron Craven, a Vancouver-based actor and playwright whose parents were diagnosed with forms of dementia just as he was becoming a father for the first time. Now Aaron is sharing his experience and theirs in a new play called Instantaneous Blue. The play is semi-autobiographical, but it seems everyone is able to relate to this story of dedication, responsibility, and love. This is the Canadian Love Map. Aaron, welcome to the Canadian Love Map. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about your new play, but I'd love to go back and and get some context and have you tell us about growing up in your family. Well, I'm the son of a couple of uh, wartime generation Canadians. My parents, Peggy and Don Craven, uh, are prairie kids who uh, my dad was born uh, before the war even started. My mom grew up just after the Dust Bowl um, with parents as farmers. So I come from a very blue collar, uh, middle Canada background. And it's really interesting, (laughs) kind of odd that I'm a a creative person and a performer because I certainly don't have that lineage in my family. It's very blue collar, civil servant, um, you know, job security being um, a big uh, um, thing in my family. So when I, when I, started studying theater in school, I was kind of like dabbling with some pre-law classes and started taking theater classes. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is what I want to do. And came home and said, uh, I think I want to be an actor. And uh, as you can imagine, um, for parents of that generation, the idea that the, their child would be a, a performer was like, uh, it was like I was running away to the circus. Um, we, you yeah. told that well, because as <laughs> yeah. you said, when I came home and said this, I started to cringe. I felt myself cringe yeah. getting ready for the response. Did yeah. they try to talk you out of it? They, you know, it was that typical, you should have a fallback plan. So why don't you get something a little bit more secure and just do this acting thing as a hobby? And, uh, once I started to get a bit of professional traction in my twenties and started to, they started to see that I was actually, uh, loving it and making a living at it. They, they started to back off. But initially, of course, uh, like. You know, if my son told me he wanted to be an actor, I'd probably have the same reaction. It's a it's a crazy profession, the arts. But, you know, if you have the fire for it and the acumen and and the love for it, it's just something ultimately you have to do. I was just going to say, sometimes there's just no choice. Yep. 
No choice. Yeah. And I don't think I could work for, uh, I'd be fired from so many jobs. I'm just, I'm not a very agreeable person when it comes to rules and regulations. So it's better that I, it's better that I'm a freelance contractor. Well, I like you all the more for that. (laughs) You get it. (laughs) The rule breakers are the interesting ones. Yeah. Tell me about each of your parents, if you don't mind, just if you could give me a a character description. Um, If they were characters in your play, that would be easy enough. I know it may be more difficult when it's your parents you're talking about. The play is semi-autobiographical, so the the parents in the play are, are loosely based on my mom and dad. Definitely a reversal of gender roles. My mom, quote unquote, wore the pants, made the decisions on trips and financial planning and so <laughs> forth. My dad was the more kind of uh, gentle, you know, when you're a kid and you play one parent off against the other when, you, when you're in trouble. It was definitely my dad I would go to and, you know, okay, don't tell your mother. Well, you know, and it was always that sort of conspiracy <laughs> off to the side. So I got the tough love and the discipline from my mom. And I, I think I got a little bit more of the tenderness and the nurturing from my dad. What was their relationship like? You know, I, I, my dad passed in 2018 and, um, as with, uh, anybody who loses a parent, I sort of reflected on his life and, um, coming out of that generation, they were able to give me opportunities in sports, um, and in the arts I, I that they didn't have growing up. That's, that's my biggest thing is I remember my dad telling me a story about, trying out for the hockey team in Edmonton. And there was one team, there was no A, B and C team. There was just the one Bantam team and he didn't make it. He went home and he cried and his dad said, well, tough luck, find something else to do. Whereas I had all the opportunities to engage in, in anything I wanted to. And so they grew up in a time of ration and a time of, you know, lower middle class and they rose to the upper middle class and were able to provide that life for me. I mean, my, my first childhood memory of my dad is always uh, the, the image that always flashes before me is he'd come home from work driving this old 70s Buick and I would uh, he'd stop at the top of the driveway and I'd go sit in his lap and steer the car into the carport yeah he was a he was a really good guy really hardworking. never saw him take a sick day just old school lunch pail least pretentious guy that I ever knew he just didn't have any airs about him and I miss him how would you describe their bond they were married uh, up until my dad's passing I guess it was about 52 53 years I think that some people probably go through the sense that maybe their parents are going to split up or there's tension. I didn't have a lot of that. They had uh, their roles and they knew what their roles were with each other. And they just kind of had an alchemy that that worked pretty well. My mom wasn't afraid of conflict. My dad didn't like conflict. So he he they kind of were like uh, complementary in that way. They were, I think, an example of opposites actually working, whereas sometimes opposites don't. Aaron, tell me about when you started to notice cognitive decline in your parents. Well, it that's a really tough thing to actually put a timeline on because when I started to notice was a little bit late in the game because I was probably in denial. So thinking back, I probably saw signs a year or two before it actually started to manifest in really obvious ways. I noticed my mom starting to repeat things oh, seven or eight years ago. And, you know, I didn't know a lot about dementia. We have so many jokes about seniors moments and, oh, senility. And and we kind of, that boogeyman is sort of something that's just kind of joked about. So I just thought, oh, mom's getting old, you know. Um, And it wasn't until the repetition really started to happen. The real telltale sign was my mom was always the cook. And I would go over there for dinner and my dad would say, oh, I got us pizza. Didn't feel like cooking tonight. Really what that was, was him covering for the fact that she couldn't 
she couldn't put a meal together anymore. Oh my. And that's when I started to realize, but the dam kind of broke when their GP called me and he asked me to come in for a meeting with him. Now he was our family doctor going all the way back to when I was a kid. Um, so I went and I sat down in his office and, and he said, uh, you need to get your mother checked. I think she's heading down the Alzheimer's path. And that hit me in the chest, obviously. And I, confirmed uh, some things that I'd already been thinking. But then he followed up with, I think your dad's on that track as well. Whew. And uh, yeah, I, I distinctly remember I, I kind of took it all in and thanked him and I drove away from the office and I just, uh, I realized I, I shouldn't be driving right now. And I pulled over to the side of the road and I just broke down. And then after that, got on with all the practical, ugly business of uh, enacting my POA and taking care of their affairs and selling their house. and getting a care aid in and it was a series of steps. Uh, and at the same time, I had a young son who was only a year old. You were the definition of the sandwich generation, really, yeah. weren't you? Well, that's what this plays about is, is those of us in this, in this traffic jam of midlife where we have professional obligations, we've had kids a little bit later in life and we've got parents in decline. Um, to think back on what a pressure cooker that particular time was, it's just, uh, it was surreal. What was the transition like for you from dependent to caregiver? Well, it's an odd feeling to think that you're going to be parenting a parent, let alone two parents at the same time. There's a lot of denial, and that's the word that always comes to me, because the natural order of things, I think, is for the most part, your parents parent you, they get to an old age, and usually some, an illness or something uh, is, is their last chapter, and it's short, but they call Alzheimer's the long goodbye because my dad's journey uh, was quite quick. He had vascular dementia and he went downhill pretty fast. But my mom still lives in long-term care and it's now been um, six years since her diagnosis. And it's stages, you know, it's stages of, oh, she doesn't recognize that person. She doesn't recognize, she still recognizes me. Um, but it is this gradual, long and, and painful process of acceptance of the new reality. We're either or both of them able to connect with your child? You had a young child, maybe your first child when they were first diagnosed? Yes, they, and I'm so thankful for that, that they had that window where they were cognizant of, of my son, Charlie, and were able to play with that. Thank God I took video. And, and um, so there was about a year, year and a half where they were very much, they came to the hospital when he was born. So they, they still had uh, their cognition for the first year and a half, two years of his life. And, you know, funny enough, my, my mom is at a late stage Alzheimer's. She's in a wheelchair and her conversation doesn't really make much sense. But when we visit and our son's with us and he's doing something mischievous or dangerous, she'll just turn her head like in a flash and say, nope, dear, don't do that. Really? Like just that maternal instinct is still somehow in there, despite it, most <laughs> everything else being gone. It's um, the disease is such a mystery. It's like she has a built in radar. Yeah. Yeah. A love radar in a way, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. caring. Yeah. Yeah. The mama bear has not left. Definitely. When did the idea bubble up to the surface for you of uh, creating uh, a work of art, a play in this case? Well, my theater company had uh, been in existence for eight or nine years. It's actually our 10 year anniversary. And we'd always done shows from playwrights from around the world. And we wanted to do an original work, an original Canadian piece. And then the pandemic hit and I had some time and some isolation and I reflected and I thought maybe there's a story here. So I wrote the play and I, I, uh, 
I was filled with a lot of self-doubt. I thought, Who, who's going to want to see a play about dementia and this is depressing. And even though I had two parents go through it, is that even plausible? Even though it happened, is it dramatically, can an audience digest that? And we did a staged reading with the script and we invited an audience of a hundred or so people. And it was at that reading that it was really confirmed that, yeah, I think I have something here because the impact on the audience was so strong. And we held a little talk back after and so many people in the audience had lived experience or, or similar experience with parents. They got all the humor, they got all the pathos, they, they just locked into it and really understood it. And my colleagues who were in attendance and the actors who were in the reading, some of them who have come back for the production, were so encouraging. They said, you have to do this. You, you have to put this in front of an audience. So that was the genesis. And uh, here we are a week into the run. And audiences, um, the reception to it has exceeded my expectations uh, wildly. I, I really can't believe how endearing the show has been to an audience. Wow. Yeah, it's been incredible. We couldn't share the great stories that we do here on the Canadian Love Map podcast without the amazing support of Charm Diamond Centres. They are Canada's largest family-owned jeweler, and they're proud to be putting love on the map. The folks at Charm Diamond Centers are thrilled to be a part of your love story. So visit CharmDiamondCenters.com or one of your local stores. Love starts here. And when you approach a project with such a sense of purpose, and then it gets a response like that, I think it's, it's more gratifying than you can imagine because you know you're making a difference somehow. Yeah, I think... Um... There's definitely a catharsis that is happening. We've had people send us emails saying, you know, my mom has dementia, my dad had dementia and so forth. And watching this play has been a healing experience. And I've always thought of art that way. I've always thought of performance that way. It's why I wanted to do it in the first place. It's so rare that you get an opportunity to impact such a wide swath of people through what you do. And in a play like this, that's just kind of ripped from the pages of my own life. I, I like to think that it has a sense of uh, reality and truth. And when you go to the theater, the theater, the Greek definition of theater is the seeing place. And so when people go to the theater, they're going to see something of the social order and have some sort of truth reflected back to them. And I said in my playwright's note in the playbill, I said, you know, it's not just about you going to see something. It's about you, the audience member, feeling seen. And we all have a family and we all experience loss. And so I don't think you have to have a parent with dementia to relate to this play because the loss of our parents and the loss of family is such an innate thing. Even if it hasn't happened to you, it's, it's this little abstraction dancing in the back of your head. And that's what I've really discovered is even people that don't have the experience that watch the play are incredibly moved by it. It's also, I mean, such an important piece of timing with our Canadian society aging quickly. This is something we have to look at. We have to consider. And as you say, there's some stigma still around it and, and, and joking, but it's something that really needs to be examined. I know that art, as you said, can be so healing for audiences, but it can also be tremendously healing for the artist as they're creating it. I'm wondering, I wrote a book during the pandemic, and I'm wondering if you had the same experience that I did, that working through creating your play about this very personal subject, uh, was that a mechanism of, of powerful healing for you? There's that Joan Didion quote, I don't write for catharsis, I write to understand. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what I got out of the writing of it. I mean, yes, catharsis is a byproduct, and I guess healing is a byproduct. But in the writing of it, I was able to understand when you, when you when you put something on paper, it's just kind of a psychological fact that you somehow exercise what's internal and you make it external. You give it light, you give it voice. And so, writing this play, I I feel like what what ended up happening was yes, I, I I got some peace and contentment out of just the exercise of writing it, and now watching an audience take it in. But I feel like I understand myself better as a as a man, as a father, as a husband. Somehow, I, I feel like I'm a more empathetic person um, to other people's uh, issues and, and problems. And so, yeah, it was. It, I didn't intend for it to be anything other than an exploration of my story, but. Uh, the byproduct has been hugely um, healing and and, um, gratifying for sure. I'm sure it's going to create change because it's going to affect people's thinking and attitudes. On a broader basis, what would you like to change about our system in this country for dealing with people who have Alzheimer's or dementia, cognitive decline? Well, I've put it into form in the play. I mean, the character that, that that is loosely based on me is struggling through so many of the steps that you have to go through when, when you're dealing with a loved one with Alzheimer's. The biggest thing, I think, is raising awareness of, of what the condition actually is, of creating a more inclusive society. I feel like there's this kind of like backing off that happens where when someone starts to falter and people are not able to kind of accept and keep up with the new reality. They want their friend back. They want their mom back. They, they want the person that was rather than being able to graduate to those levels of acceptance where you can go with that new reality. The biggest thing practically and something that I've talked to, you know, people in law and civic uh, areas is when you're a power of attorney, it's like every single company, every single utility or bill or healthcare plan. It's like every single person you contact, you're starting from the beginning. Who are you? What's your paperwork? Have you sent your paperwork in? It's like a full-time job just to try to organize your parents' life. And my biggest point of advocacy in all this is a power of attorney should have some sort of universal card where when you when you go into deal, you are your parent, you are their voice, and, and like this is your proof of it. So you don't have to go through faxing and emailing and paperwork and, and start from the beginning every single time you're dealing with an issue. That was my biggest thing is I'm a f- new father and I, I'm on, you know, working as an actor and I've got all these obligations. And here I am going through hours of phone calls to just prove who I am and try to like close down a phone bill or something like that. It, it was an extraordinary amount of work that I don't think the, the workload and the collateral damage that happens to families as a result is something that with the aging boomer population, we have to somehow make change because I don't want people to have to live through exactly what I lived through in the process of helping their parent. Yeah, it's frustration layered on grief and, yeah. and uh, yeah, just being so torn apart by what's going on, I'm sure. Yeah. I know you had a bad experience at one point taking your mother to the hospital or a health center. Uh, what can you tell me about that? Well, my mother was a, is a retired nurse. And so uh, we had a home care aide in their place uh, helping them out. And, and my mom was quite combative and stubborn, wouldn't, couldn't really digest the fact that someone was helping out with my dad, didn't want them in the house. And it got to a kind of a crisis point. So I called 811, the nurse's line. I said, here's the situation. What do I do? And they said, you should really take her into the hospital and they'll 
kind of admit her and get her some medication that will kind of help stabilize her mood. And, and then that will maybe help you transition into a care home. So I took her to the hospital, uh, St. Paul's in Vancouver, which is also ground zero for the opioid crisis. Last place a person with dementia should be. Mm-hmm. And I told my mom, I, I kind of lied to her. I said, you know, there's just something with your heart we're worried about. We're going to take you in for a checkup, blah, blah, blah. And two hours go by and four hours go by and six hours go by and we're in the waiting room. And I keep telling the charge nurse and the people, I said that she's going to start to sundown, which is when hallucinations and paranoia kicks up late in the day. You you have to get her admitted. You have to get her to a quiet place. She's going to, and they just kept whatever the hospital was busy. And it got to maybe five o'clock in the afternoon. Finally, my mom said, I don't want to be here anymore. And she stood up and tried to leave. And I was trying to like talk her down and ask for some more oral medication. Uh, They called security. And um, security came in and put her on a gurney and strapped her down, forcibly stripped her naked and to get a gown on her. And she was screaming her head off for her father. And she kept on screaming this phrase, not in front of the men, not in front of the men, because I think she understood as that old fashioned sort of that she was being unchanged in front of men. It was it was absolutely devastating. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of hard to talk about. Well, it's, it's hard to hear as well. It really is. It hits me right in the heart. You you became an activist at that point in a way, yeah. in a way because you wrote a letter using that emotion and and trying to get some attention. Yeah, I went to the press. I thought, you know, I don't want other people to go through this. There's something very wrong with the way people in this state are admitted to hospital. There has to be a different way of doing this, of triaging them, of treating them. A senior citizen should not be put through this no matter what state they're in. So I wrote an open letter to the press. I've got a little bit of a modest platform as an actor. And, and um, yeah, the press picked it up. It was a big article in the Vancouver Sun. Then the Alzheimer's Society called me. My phone started ringing. And I was able to, I think, along with uh, some other people that were advocates within the system, I was able to change a few things in the way that um, the algorithms work in terms of admitting senior citizens to hospital, where they should go at any given time if they're in a state like my mom was. And there's the new St. Paul's Hospital being built here in Vancouver. And I was actually called into a citizens planning meeting and they asked me, you know, what, what do you think is needed? And I said, you need to create a geriatric admittance wing. They need to be in a quiet place. It's like we have a maternity ward for a reason. You don't put an expectant mother in a situation where there's already trauma going on all around them. You don't put a new child in that, right? You separate mm-hmm. them. And that's, I think, the the wave of change that needs to happen is there needs to be more understanding of, of what it is to be in a hallucinatory state with Alzheimer's, how that's admitted, how that's treated, the, the factors that calm that state and create a more dignified way to help people and their families in that position to transition them into a stabilized care. So as unfortunate as my experience was, I, I think it actually created some waves of change, at least uh, in the Vancouver area and, and in BC and, and hopefully throughout the country. Well, in a broader way, too, it's so encouraging to think that one person can affect how compassionate the system is, even if just a little tiny bit, you know, you see a little bit of, of movement and you think if we really all work together, then what a difference we could make. But we have to care about the subject. We have to know about the subject. And that is so much what you're doing with the play. A a lot of people, Aaron, believe that the hardest chapters of our lives are here to teach us something. If that's the case for you, what has been your greatest learning? That's a really good question. As cliche as it might sound, 
I, I look around at people who are, you know, at arm's length with their family and have unresolved issues. And I sometimes just want to like grab them and just say, resolve it. Like whatever it is, life is so short. You never know. Like that, that phrase, you know, we only have our health. It's like, I have seen what happens when mental health goes quickly. So that's, I guess, been the biggest learning thing for me is, you know, when I have an inkling to call a friend up or a family member, I don't hesitate. I think you need to appreciate how fleeting life is and how privileged we are to actually have our health and our, and our cognition and to realize that that, that can go. And so to try to make amends with family, um, if possible, and to live life as completely and fully as you can, you know, you wrote a book, don't put off writing that book. Don't be the person who is going to write a book someday. Just do it. I think there's an immediacy that comes with going through a traumatic experience like this. And it certainly has been the case for me. You know, I, I, I tell my son that I love him every day, that I'm proud of him because if, if, if this condition were to befall me tomorrow, I, I, don't, I want the record to be known to all my loved ones, uh, how I felt. I guess that's been the biggest learning thing for me to come out of this is I, I guess I'm a more, uh, my heart's more on my sleeve than it ever was before this. Well, what a legacy you've already created with this play. And as much as I'd like to get on a plane and come out there and see it right now, I have a feeling it's going to come to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a, a very good feeling that this play is going to find uh, larger stages far and wide. Yeah, I mean, the hope for the play is that it has future iterations around the world. I think given the response from critics and audiences, uh, the fact that ticket sales are exploding uh, in Vancouver uh, is, you know, puts it in good stead to, to be remounted around the country and hopefully around the world. I want to give a shout out to the actors in this production. It, it's been really interesting to see actors who some of who have lived experience with dementia bring these words to life in in such an incredible way so i i just want to say that i'm not only lucky to have have the platform to put this play up for an, a, an appreciative audience but the actors that are attached to this are just incredible and and a good play needs good actors and we have them yeah i feel very uh, very fortunate do you think it's changing them somehow? What message have you gotten from them? 100%. <clears throat> you can tell the energy in a rehearsal room. You can tell when something is hitting somebody on a cellular level. And I think everybody's going to walk away from this production somewhat changed. And I, I get the show reports every night. And uh, let's just say that there's a lot of Kleenex uh, in the theater, both in the wings and also in the lobby for the audience. There's something about this, this material and the way that this play is being executed that hits people pretty deep. What was it like the first night when you watched the show with an audience? I sat at the very back because I didn't want people staring at the back of my head who knew me thinking, what does he think? Is he like, oh, is he getting emotional? I didn't want to. I just wanted to watch the crowd from, I like to sit at the very back and, and watch people take it in. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, my wife was with me, uh, Kate, and, and um, she's gone through the experience with me and was very emotionally struck. And yeah, there's, I mean, to have an audience watch something that you've written is one thing, but to watch something you've written that is also kind of based on your own experience and to watch them connect with it and be affected so deeply by it is, yeah, I mean, gosh, I've done a lot of things in my life, scuba dived and traveled and, and, and done lots of adventurous things, but I, I, there's no experience like that sitting in a theater watching an audience just be swept away by your work. It's, it's quite something. 
Give me your elevator pitch. <laughs> uh, Mitch and Murray Productions is very proud to present the world premiere of Instantaneous Blue. And we're now up and running in Vancouver at the Waterfront Theater. We have two more weeks. The show closes January 22nd. And you can get your tickets and all show details at MitchandMurrayProductions.com. That's M-I-T-C-H and Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y, Productions.com. Thank you for being the vehicle for this message to get out into the world. Yeah, thank you, Nancy. Thanks for listening to the Canadian Love Map. If you love us, please subscribe and share. And if you want to help us spread the love even more, rate and review our podcast. It makes such a difference. We'll be back next week with another love story to add to the map. This podcast is presented and made possible by Charm Diamond Centers. It's hosted by me, Nancy Regan, and is produced and distributed by Podstarter.